But unlike a, a pure startup where you're only focusing on that new product, uh, you have the competing demands. If you have an existing business already and you have to make sure you don't drop the ball on that while you're also creating something new and you're managing the change of teams and people between that uh, internally and externally trying to, to telegraph that. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Carrie Bianchi, who is the president and CEO of Visto, which is a company dedicated to bringing transparency and accountability to digital advertising and more. Carrie joined the company in 2015 as a chief operating officer and the president before taking over the CEO role in 2017. She is also the 2017 Silver Stevie Award winner for the Female Executive of the Year, as well as a past winner of Brand Innovators Top 50 Women in Brand Marketing. Carrie, how's it going? Doing great, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you give us a little background on kind of who you are and your story a little bit? Sure. Uh, I, I think maybe I'm a little bit of an unusual path to uh, kind of ad tech, uh, which is the space that I'm in now, but came up actually through the uh, agency side of the business. Thought advertising sounded really uh, uh, interesting, and it led me to jobs uh, across publishing and media, to running uh, the global media management practice over at Accenture for three years, which was a great uh, learning field for, for global businesses and what's on the mind of CMOs. Uh, and then I also had the chance to sit client side over at E-Trade Financial before uh, coming to, to my job here at Visto. And I think it was really the fact that I had been through all of those different paths and sort of sat at different seats around the table that I think uh, has really helped me uh, and set me up for success here because those are all customers that we sell to and constituencies that we have to really understand uh, to build our products. Awesome. So what what is Visto exactly and how does it help people? Yeah, so I think to, to put it simply, think of uh, Visto as like a command center uh, for managing all of your programmatic uh, ad buying. And typically for folks, you know, they might be using a bunch of different uh, systems or partners to be able to do that. They might be uh, doing search advertising. They might be buying ads on Facebook and a whole bunch of different uh, sources. And they might have a whole bunch of different audiences they're trying to reach. And uh, typically it means you have to log in and out of a whole bunch of different systems and partner uh, UIs. Uh, or, you know, interfaces to be able to manage that. So we've created basically this command center where you can plug everything in and use all of the partners you want, uh, be, able, be able to manage it and see what's happening with all of your money that you're spending on advertising in a very transparent way. Great. Okay. And so, I mean, some people out there, when, when I remember actually um, on my other podcast, my, my, my co-host, sometimes he'll say, you know, that the people in the ad tech game, it's tough because when you look at a Facebook or a Google, you know, what's to stop their engineers from building something similar? Um, I guess the, your argument would be that you guys have this command center and you're hooking with, you know, different APIs to um, make it easier to manage, right? That's exactly it. So for me, I, I love uh, that there's a marketplace that's really robust, that people are building cool things, uh, because my job is not to try to rebuild or compete with them. It's more, can I bring all those tools together so it would be easy for someone like you, if you want to take advantage of Facebook and Google, 
right? They might not share with each other, but you might want to use both. So how can I make it really easy for you to do that? You can plug them both into our interface and take advantage of the, the great work they're both doing. Awesome. Okay. And so how did the company start? We were talking about this a little earlier before we, we got rolling. Sure. Yeah. And what's actually, uh, Vista was born out of a, a, a more mature company that's actually been around for over 12 years called Collective. And Collective was an ad network at its core and um, really, you know, savvy in terms of knowing how to find audiences and having great bidder algorithms and ways to, you know, place ads in a way that was really, uh, you know, really appropriate and, and good at finding the right audience and, and having great uh, uh, inventory, ad inventory available for folks. So I think through that, uh, we learned a lot about in the industry obviously. And uh, what we saw a few years ago was a need for, you know, not just the big agencies that had deep pockets to build this technology, but we really thought it could be democratized and that, you know, marketers, uh, smaller agencies, media companies, a whole host of people uh, would want to have the ability to have this kind of technology to be smart buyers or traders of media. And, uh, you know, so that was really the vision behind it was, could we take the knowledge we had from living in the space and uh, point it to a whole new product, which basically incubated and then launched uh, as its own separate company about a year and a half ago. Great. And so the, the company that incubated you guys, are they, are they still around? Um, are they still operating a separate entity? Yeah, so so interesting how that happened. So uh, the, the the legal entity is the collective. Actually, we split it into two divisions uh, the year and a half ago, right? One to really now house this new software technology called Visto, and then another division to house our, our legacy uh, managed services businesses that were part of the ad network. And uh, that services business was actually sold to another company, Zeta Global, at the beginning of this year. So it really came full circle transformation in that, you know, kind of all of the what was part of legacy ad network and collective was actually sunset the beginning of last year and then really spawned. And you could see us move over not only in branding, but fully moving behind uh, Visto now as the go forward, go to market brand and entity. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of people, you know, we, we talked about this beforehand. It's a lot of people, it's let's go raise money. Let's raise a seed round a series A or whatever. And that seems like perhaps the only route or, or um, you can go the other route, which is, I think it's not only just bootstrapping, but it's it's building something up from scratch, maybe you know, generating cash flow from some consulting business first, uh, like what you guys did, or even what Moz did. Now, uh, formerly SEO Moz, and now you know, then afterwards, you know, they they raise money to, to really grow the thing. I think that's a smarter way to do it. You build the audience first, or you build the revenue first, and then you incubate it, and then you know, you kind of split them off, and it makes life easier, right? It, it really does. And, and because it was in, in adjacent area, uh, it also helped in terms of some client referrals, right? We had our own client base who was, some of them needed that managed service help, but there were others who were starting to mature and really want that self-service technology solution. And so we were really maturing at the same time that some of our client base was, and some stayed with the uh, legacy organization and wanted that managed service help. And then there were others that really wanted this technology product and they can kind of glide path over into that. So it, it became even a referral right, or re revenue referral lane as well, having that legacy company be the, the incubator for this new product. Yeah, we're basically doing the same thing with uh, with, with the agency right now. We, we have a SaaS solution. I'm not sure what we're going to, I mean, the agency, you know, we kind of decision right now is to, to, you know, continue to keep it. It's growing, it's thriving. So who knows what will happen, but I think it's a great model. So for Visto, how do you, what kind of companies are you typically targeting uh, size-wise and how do you charge? 
Yeah, so there's a, a three core channels that we're selling to right now. Uh, as you might imagine, a, uh, advertising agencies, uh, and they come in a couple shapes and sizes. I think that they, you know, range from mid-market independents up to the, you know, agencies that sit within a holding company and they're starting to make more independent decisions about their tech. So agencies is one. Uh, a second that's interesting is uh, media companies because they have typically used us for um, adding reach extension or audience extension onto their owned and operated properties. So they've got kind of a unique use case in that uh, they can actually use our Visto platform to knit together not only what they're buying, but also put their owned and operated channels in next to it and have this nice platform where they can actually look across all of their revenue streams and look at yield across all of those together and create a unified offering, unified analytics uh, back to their their end clients. And then the third one, and I think this has been interesting to watch, and, and I'm sure you're seeing this in the marketplace as well as marketers and brands directly. And, and there, it takes on a couple of different flavors. I mean, there, there are going to be a few that I think are savvy enough or big enough to bring it in-house, or at least they're curious about that. Um, but I think there's a, a lot of others that probably want a tool like this to be able to have just a better view, maybe control their data a little bit more closely, the analytics a little bit more closely, and, and have that license. But they still may want their agency partners to be the experts and the ones who are managing it on their behalf. It just gives them a common platform to be able to look at what's happening with their media spend, right? And they can kind of unify around that. So I think as marketers look more and more to have transparency in terms of what's happening with their spend, that we'll, we'll see that as, a, a, you know, I think a growing model. Great. And for people that are interested in perhaps trying it out, I mean, general price range, you don't need to give out the secret sauce, but is it a couple hundred, a couple thousand bucks a month? Yeah, so we're going to be in the thousands a month, and it's a subscription fee, and it's typically just re- related to uh, the amount of uh, impressions or spend you have running through the system. Great. And just to build on the, the point of programmatic, I, I was reading a little early about uh, some stuff you talked about in the past about kind of the, the lack of transparency in, in cost with advertising. So programmatic, I was talking to a friend that works at a big agency actually in New York. He's like, we make all our money off programmatic, but you know the, the clients don't know what the heck is going on. So can you speak to the lack of transparency and what you're doing about it? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think marketers are figuring out they don't know what the heck is going on. <laughs> and uh, it is raising a lot of questions. So I, I think we actually think about transparency in three ways. Cost is definitely one. And, and that's because if you think about it, right, it's just like any product, right, there's markups along the way, which is you have maybe your publisher you're trying to reach, you're trying to get to CNN.com and you want to buy an ad there. And uh, then there might be uh, a network it's part of, and that gets rolled up into maybe a, 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 D- a DSP that the, the, agency might be buying on and maybe they have their own trading desk that's you know added on top of that and so once you add all of these layers right there's that tech tax that tends to add up um, and it's very hard for a marketer to necessarily see how much of their money is actually going to the ad that they really wanted at the end of the day and in some cases the layers are adding value right they might be better at finding the right audiences and getting the right content to the right people at the right time and bidding in a really selective way but other times uh, it may not be and so I think that's that's one area that I think marketers are starting to ask a lot more questions and understand you know, what that trail looks like or asking for more transparent pricing. And then we see two other areas of transparency, which you know have been other, other pillars and in, in, in reports that we've made available in the platform, which is also transparency, meaning ad fraud and viewability, right? Just did a human see my ad? Did they have the opportunity to see it? And that's just sort of a core 
I think, uh, sort of cost of entry now that people want to be able to see those metrics. And then if they do have an agency, you know, like your friend uh, operating on their behalf, uh, they, that might be fine, right? That, that that's what they're paying those services for. But they would like more transparency in terms of how decisions are being made. You know, why did we send the money to Google or to Facebook or uh, to some other publisher? Was that really because it was the best decision for me, the marketer? Or is that because it was a good financial decision for you as an agency? And I think there's been some question marks around, you know, what's the priority and, and how clear has that been to clients at the end of the day? Great. Makes sense. And so I guess selfishly a question, I mean, you know, we are on the paid advertising side of things, we're a performance agency. And, you know, when you look at the the, the large agencies out there, a lot of them are just operating off of off of programmatic. Um, is that what you're seeing with your, your current customer base right now? Is it mostly, are they almost all programmatic? You know, can you tell who's operating strictly on performance, who isn't? Yeah, I think it's it, we're seeing a real hybrid start to develop. I think uh, that it's getting more nuanced, but I think at the end of the day, whether you call it performance uh, or not, I think that there's just uh, a better sort of uh, focus on having some kind of uh, real KPI at the end of the day that you're managing to. Um, and I think you know, in some cases, those have been rather unsophisticated, right? Just getting to a ter- total number of, uh, of impressions or spends or, or s- amount of spend, you know, kind of delivering in full or clicks. But I think, you know, you're seeing more and more that folks want something that they can equate to uh, return on ad spend at the end of the day. So to, to me, we're seeing a lot more, I think, focus on what are those uh, kind of measurable steps that I can prove that the advertising was leading towards something that I can point to as a real dollar back to the business. So uh, I, I think uh, some, some performance nuance, right, whether it's an actual performance KPI or not, I think it's just uh, that that's part of a lot of our reporting is just how can we give a, a client good visibility in terms of the question of is it working or is it not. Right. Okay. And how did you, so you're targeting mostly mid-market to enterprise companies. So how did you go about acquiring, let's say, say the first hundred paying customers? Yeah, I think uh, two two things that we saw happening, and um, you know, one was obviously just the the legacy business and having great relationships there, and, and knowing some people that were on the path. So some of it was just conversions out of our own uh, legacy stream. Uh, what's been interesting for us in a new channel that we've been really uh, exploring is that since it is a new offering and um, requires a bit of education, we've been looking for other channel partners who are also in the space helping to educate enterprises marketers about what to do with their uh, programmatic ad tech, how to think about their MarTech stack, that sort of thing. And those have been really interesting. They could be, you know, small to big uh, consultancies, you know, friends like uh, my old uh, shop, uh, Accenture, Deloitte Digital, PwC, McKinsey, like they're all, uh, you know, I think building up practices that are focusing on this as well as uh, some that are more bespoke just to programmatic. They might be, you know, a couple of folks and, uh, you know, folks like uh, Jounce or Prohaska or some of these, you know, Unbound that are uh, focusing, I think, on helping again to to get to uh, enterprises that are trying to navigate the space and, and just need a sounding board or consigliere to, to help navigate all of this. So they've been great, I think, referral streams because they are reaching a client when they're really, I think, open to education and thinking about what kind of technology they need in their organizations. Right. Okay. So I, I guess I want, actually wanted to backtrack a second. I mean, I was just thinking about this. So, you know, moving from the, the original, uh, let's say the, uh, you know, le- legacy company, I think that's what you're calling it. So, and then we, we talked about change management uh, a second ago. Was that, was, the, was the, the topic around change management kind of making that transition over or was it something else? 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely it. And, and I think, look, we can look at it both inside and outside. And on the inside, it was, you know, we were changing the business model, right? Pricing model for an ad network is completely different than a SaaS company. Uh, so it was a, a change in terms of, you know, selling model, even uh, the sellers, right? The kind of experience they would have and context they would have within the organization uh, often being different uh, to just a mindset of being more uh, a scrappy startup, right? We're building new product and, and uh, wanting a need needing that feedback from the marketplace in terms of functionality and, and how we're building it out. So I think it's just a whole different mindset in terms of the way that we operated, uh, you know, sales, marketing, operations, production, and, and uh, product and engineering, right, versus uh, having a product that was very mature. Uh, so I think that that was a big piece was just helping to uh, the organization to understand the journey we were on, uh, right? And that that would be uh, some things that we would need to adapt over time. And that included some people moving into new roles internally, as well as bringing in some new talent from the outside that I think was infused with that mindset uh, to help us get there. And also letting people go too, right? Yeah, it happens sometimes. And look, I, I think that that's just a, a matter of hopefully uh, if an organization is going through that big of a change is that you can have really honest conversations with people and say, hey, this might have fit when we were really focusing on this kind of business or this kind of role. And if that's uh, less of, of the focus of the business, um, then I think it's it's okay. And, and for some of those folks, we said, hey, I, I want to be the first one in line to find you the right spot where you can still leverage your talents that might be focused in this area. Some, some had transferable skills that it made it easy for them to to move over into other positions. And then others, it, w- it made sense for them to say, hey, I want to find my next best role. Uh, and, and we could be active and open about helping them do that uh, based on the changes that were happening in the organization. Okay. And so around change management, I mean, are there any tactical things that you did, any maybe templates, books, or whatever uh, resources you use to help you get through that, that challenge? It sounds like a pretty big beast to wrestle with. I think the biggest thing, and it sounds uh, really mundane, but it's the probably the biggest core in terms of what you need to do is just around communication. When there's that much change in an organization, you just have to make sure people understand what's happening around them. It can feel very unsettling to people. Change is always a little bit unsettling, uh, but I think if they know what the master plan is, they're being kept in the loop about it, and also things change. So if we changed, if there was a course correction, if we adapted because of feedback from the marketplace or anything like that, uh, I think that it, it has to be happening at multiple levels within your organization. So it might be at company-wide level, then you know, with your direct reports, it could be happening within departments. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how to create multi-level communications so that people would feel that they knew what was happening and they were empowered and, and understood it. And also uh, that it wasn't just top-down, that they could also contribute to it, right? Those became two-way lanes to then elicit feedback and make sure that Emperor had no closed moments weren't happening here that, uh, you know, people were really bought in together in terms of what we were building. And how often are, are you communicating? Because it sounds like a really sensitive thing where you can, you know, if you only communicate a month at a time, you can see people going off the rails. Yeah, exactly. No, and I think uh, there, there's uh, meetings happening at different cadences. Uh, we would have, you know, kind of for the big, really super deep dive, there might be uh, a quarterly all hands. And typically it's after we have our board meeting and we would even share some of what was shared in the board meeting, their feedback and some of the roadmap. And, and that would be a chance for kind of a, a multi-department, you know, kind of deep dive for everyone in the company. Um, we have a briefer version of that that we actually do biweekly, a, a stand-up that's really quick hits. You know, we're, we have sprints every two weeks. So it's a 
chance to update on what's happening in this sprint, what's happening in the sales cycle, that again, everyone's getting a, a little snapshot of what's happening. And then weekly are where the one-on-ones are happening uh, between me and my uh, management team. We have a leadership meeting, but then also one-on-ones for me and my directs. And then they're doing the same with their direct reports, either departmental or one-on-one meetings on a weekly basis. So it's a chance to, at multiple levels here, what's happening, but also for people to have a safe haven to be able to ask questions back about that uh, and make sure that there's enough communication lanes for that to be going back and forth. Perfect. I love it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get this written in the show notes in terms of like a, a cadence to follow. But I've talked about this a couple of times with, with other people on, on the show, too. If, if people are looking for people, something to just give me a book, Eric, or give me a, uh, give me like a checklist or whatever. People can just look at Traction, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. Just read that. There's a bunch of stuff in there to follow or Scaling Up by, by Vern Harnish. Either or is fine. Now, in terms of, I guess, going back to, or we're still on the topic of change management, change management. So when you, when you decided to, um, when they were making that transition from the legacy business to where it is now, you weren't, were you part of a company? I, I was. I actually came just as that was starting three years ago. Yeah. So the sort of the seed was there, and I came to actually be part of implementing it. Okay. What was like the the impetus? Like at what point was it like? Uh, okay, now you know, it's time to make this thing, Visto, a a separate entity. Was it like hitting a specific number? Like, well, when do people know that it's time to split something off from the original company? Yeah, I think for us, there were there were two things that happened. Well, one was certainly uh, we, we wanted a, a, an MVP of, of the product to be stood up, and, and we had that at the beginning of last year. So when we could fully put our existing business on the platform and be using it completely, that, that was a big milestone for us. We actually uh, soft launched it on, on purpose because we wanted to make sure that when we came out in market and started talking to people about it with the new branding and new product, that we could talk about existing clients already on the platform platform, right? Use cases in terms of usage through the platform, because these are the first things people ask you. Great. Is it real or is it in beta? You know, is there anyone on it yet? Uh, and and it, was, it was great because by the time that we launched officially with the new branding uh, later in 2017, right, those questions could be answered. And I think it brings a lot more uh, kind of believability and, uh, and credence to what you're doing when it can be backed up versus, hey, I've got a great idea. And, you know, they say, great, come back to me in a couple months when it's fully formed versus having, I think, a very rich kind of conversation conversation that you could start with uh, having having set a lot of that up in place uh, earlier in the year. Awesome. Great. Well, what is what's working really well for you in terms of customer acquisition today? So I would have to assume sales, outside sales, any, anything else? Yeah, I would say that's the big one in terms of just, uh, you know, obviously we're still pretty lean and mean. And it's uh, and so having that distributed network of, of channel partners, consultancies and others that we're educating on the product to help be right that that extended sales force. I would say the other is just because we're launching something new and uh, I think, you know, some some questions about uh, what it is and how it functions that a big piece for us has also been creating content thought leadership uh, to help do that education process that could fill in. Uh, around the meetings. And uh, so that, I think that's been a big part of our marketing PR uh, outreach is uh, getting the chance where we can speak, where we can, uh, you know, execute or send out white papers and, and, and other, uh, I think, thoughtful articles in terms of the space uh, that that's been a big part of the, uh, the the sales outreach as well. Great. What is, I think earlier, I mean, my question was going to be centered around a big struggle you face while growing the business. And I remember we talked about juggling it all. So can you kind of speak to what juggling it all means? What's the story behind that? Yeah, I think, um, well, we had something unique in that uh, I think 
as you're going through the, uh, the the change or you're building something new and uh, great that we had the opportunity to build it out of the, you know, kind of a mature organization. But unlike a, a peer startup where you're only focusing on that new product, uh, you have the competing demands. If you have an existing business already and you have to make sure you don't drop the ball on that while you're also creating something new and you're managing the change of teams and people between that uh, internally and externally trying to, to telegraph that. So I think uh, it was making sure that, you know, one wasn't suffering uh, at the hands of the other. Uh, we went through a lot of like people literally who, who had uh, responsibilities for both uh, existing and new products saying, should my life, should my day be 50-50? Should it be 70-30? Like really trying to, to figure out how much emphasis to put on one versus the other. And I think it took uh, for us doing some separation of both allocating dedicated sort of time, space, and people to each effort that I think finally really made that clear and, and made it a lot simpler for us to get traction in both places. Actually, I mean, I'm literally, we're going through that that right now where people are asking in the leadership meeting, you know, uh, how much time do we put to the software? Like, how does that fit into, you know, the, the business model of the original business? And, you know, if you're to go back and do it again, would you just go out and uh, I guess, how would you do it? Would you split things off like w- w- immediately or how would you do it? Yeah, I think we, we had a lot of people that were sort of dual focused for a long time. And, and I think um, if if we had made that switch, I think a little bit more quickly to have that separation of roles, it just, you saw the immediate uplift because people woke up every day and knew exactly what they were supposed to do a thousand percent, right? Just focused in, in their lane and, and um, it, it avoided some of that kind of you know, going back and forth and the time that's sort of lost and having to keep switching your head back and forth. And um, I would say that, you know, that that was probably one of the biggest things that we did. And I think if we, uh, yeah, we could have gotten there even faster, maybe if we'd started that even a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's just confusing for people when they're being pulled in all these different directions, right? It is. It is. Yeah. And, you know, you're building something new and that's that's a full time job. It can't just be a hobby. And so um, I think that, you know, if you really want to accelerate and invest there, that that you do need to make sure there's at least, you know, even if it's a Navy SEALs team or someone that's been uh, sort of, you know, paired off to do that, that, that they can get the proper velocity on it. You know, that's the thing, too, because I, I, I actually was, was thinking about that analogy. It's like, OK, we need to build a Navy SEALs team. Let's say we build a portfolio of businesses or whatever, just an example. You know, But the, the thing is, like, if you build a Navy SEALs team and you tell the entire team that you have a Navy SEALs team, my, my thinking is like, don't they feel a little alienated that they're not part of that team? Yeah. And, and so, we, you know, in some cases, what we did was, um, you know, used some of the folks that were uh, sort of internally, right? The, the other uh, kind of uh, mature business was actually a client of the new business, right? If you think about it, we were, they were going to be users and buyers of the tech uh, internally. And so we, we leveraged them in a different way where they were uh, contributing, but more as, uh, you know, users and, you know, kind of more user feedback, QA. Uh, and so they didn't have to be distracted in the build of it, but they were contributing and we were still using, I think, their their knowledge uh, about what would be required in the system to, I think, feed in good input into it. So I think it's, yeah, having a little bit different role, right, versus everybody has to do everything. Right. Customer development, big thing. Okay. So what what's one big change, we're switching gears here, what's one big change you made personally in the last year that's either impacted yourself or the business in, in a really big way? Oh, wow. Well, uh, 
I think it's interesting. I tried a little experiment. Uh, I think part of the uh, the frenetic part of um, being always on, right, when you're in this pace and, and you've got a lot of things going 24-7, if you have a global team, that's always the case, is getting that little bit of space and time to be able to just reflect a little bit, think a little bit, uh, rest and recuperate a little bit. Uh, and I think that's one thing that uh, we certainly saw was just trying to find the balance so we weren't burning people out. Uh, and so one of the things I've personally done is that, you know, I'll, I'll have thoughts all the time, late at night, you know, early in the morning on my commute in, over the weekend. And, but what I was realizing was, you know, what I didn't want was for people to feel like they were on call to have to answer me at that time, right? That just happened to be when I think thought it, but it doesn't mean I'm expecting you to answer me at 1130 at night or on Saturday. Right. Uh, so one of the things that I've uh, been experimenting with was if it's non-essential, non-urgent, uh, which a lot of things are not, uh, that uh, just to put a, a delay on the email so it just didn't appear in their inbox until it was back to working hours. So if it was thought over the weekend, I can still have it, but uh, there's no expectation, right, that I'm expecting a reply and it could just get pushed to them and there's not, not this unspoken need to respond. And even if I would say, hey, I don't need you to reply, it's no big deal. It's still interrupting their week and they're seeing it in their inbox if they're looking at their phone. And I think uh, to kind of free people uh, and, and each other of that burden, um, I think is helpful to give people the space to uh, to relax uh, when they need to. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I think it's the same thing too um, for, for my side. And you know, I, I use a tool for that. I'm curious, which tool do you use for scheduling, setting these emails for later? Yeah, it's a it's just in the uh, the Outlook manager, right? And you can just put a delay in and pick a time. Oh wow. Outlook is Outlook is getting it together. Actually, I see a lot of people using Outlook now. I guess I need to move back to it, but um, I think they need something like this for text delayed text messages and delayed Slack messages as well, right? Yeah, because I want to send it when I'm thinking about it, right? Because I'll forget it. So I, I do want to like capture it in the moment when I'm thinking it, but it doesn't mean that someone has to respond to it in that same second. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. hundred percent. Okay. Well, working towards wrapping up here, what is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's really helped your life? So it could be like a literally a physical tool, like buying a bike, or it could be like a Evernote, like an app. Oh gosh. I'm trying to think about anything new. I don't know of anything that I've done quickly, easily. I'd say, uh, you know, probably is, is maybe just a little bit more of a, I, I don't have a ton of apps on my phone and uh, it's mostly populated with all the stuff my high school boys have uh, bought and appears there <laughs> magically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I would say ju- just some things in terms of, you know, some of the uh, just connection tools and it's really basic stuff between, you know, LinkedIn and some of the note taking uh, that I do there. I think, you know, uh, some basic stuff to, to make my phone less of a paperweight. Yeah, well, it sounds like you got simplicity to the lockdown. So I, I think that's a big thing people can can copy. Um, what is one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? All right. So this is a real oddball one, but uh, I, I was born and raised in Seattle. So if you are a Northwest fan or uh, have ever visited the Pike Place Market, you know about the guys that throw the fish, right? Yep. Uh, and there's actually a great book. I, I don't know how it, it came to me originally, but uh, it's called Catch. And it's a fishmonger's guide to greatness. And uh, it it was very interesting. You wouldn't think that these would be the guys that would be a great leadership case study. But it was a lot about just sort of uh, instead of being a reactive person, I guess you're a fish catcher, if that's the case. (laughs) Uh, But really thinking about how you can kind of control what happens around you. And it's all about your own perception about what's happening, right? And you can create positive outcomes purely by the way you perceive what's happening in an instance. And you can choose to view it in a positive way or view it in a negative way. And the way that other people respond to that has a lot to do with the way you're focusing on it. Wow. I love it. That's like the most random book I've ever heard of. It's like so, so <laughs> relevant. I'm curious to know, how did you learn about that book? 
Yeah, I think it w- w- was, uh, I, I had one of my uh, media side gigs was at uh, Reader's Digest. And so there was, as you can imagine, tons of books around all the time. So you would see as, you know, books were being uh, developed or edited. And so you got kind of a sneak peek at a bunch. And so I would always go by the book table and pick up something that looked interesting. And uh, the Seattle thing drew me in. I thought, oh, like, this will be a fun kind of flip and read. And I, I found it was really inspiring, you know, unexpected place to find some, uh, some leadership and in, in, uh, team building advice. That's great. Well, Carrie, this has been great. What's the best way for, for people to find you online? Yeah, uh, if you go to Vistohub, V-I-S-T-O-H-U-B dot com, you can find uh, information about Visto as well as contact me there. Awesome. Carrie, thanks so much for doing this. Great. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.